Okay, before I start, whose horn is going off? The black Jeep. That's okay. We got a lot of evil, bad people around here, so I'm glad we're on top of that. Say, I don't know how many of you actually uh, read the email that gets sent on on Saturdays. We refer to it as the teaser. What we do is, is we describe uh, the themes that are going to be held at each of the campuses. Uh, and then the text. I know some people like to get it ahead of time, read through it. They start to mentally and spiritually prepare. Uh, if you got a chance to read yesterday's teaser, then what I shared with you was uh, just a moment of enlightenment that I had this week as I was prepping for today's lesson and doing a little bit of my own research. I had always assumed that the trait that we human beings need to learn is how to trust one another, how to trust people. And the reality is, is that neuroscience has actually told us it's just the opposite. We are born with the automatic trait of trust. It's an amazing creation of God, and you can see the wisdom of it, especially uh, uh, raising young ones. They automatically trust mom and dad. And come to find out, the reality is, is that the trait we actually learn over time is to not trust so, so just to understand where we're at, originally God created us to automatically trust him without question. And unfortunately, because of sin, the reality is, is that oftentimes we don't trust him. And maybe you can even think of uh, your own life situation or maybe an example where in this lifetime you have learned not to trust. All comes down to one word, trust. Come on, all right. proact. Esau, baby. Let's go, Kate. We thought some team building would be fun to demonstrate that. Okay, we got you, Jacob. Harrison, count us off. Three, two. Hold up. <gasps> you know, it seemed like a good idea. Well, that was the end of Trust Fall Friday. Fall Friday. Uh, any of you guys do that as part of your corp? You, you where you actually had to do that? We took the kids up to Camp Rise. So they had to do that full, but I mean, it's a common corporate thing to build teams and all that, but more times than not, and I, I was looking for the perfect video for this, more times than not, what we discover is it doesn't often go the way that it was planned. Uh, that said, um, and I talked to Pastor A because he was here last Sunday, so I just want to double check. He did actually introduce you to the new sermon series that we're going through for this Trinity season, and it has this theme of turning points. So what we're going to do for the 25 Sundays uh, during the Trinity season is take a look at uh, different situations, uh, specifically people of God, when they face these critical moments in their lives, and they have a decision to make. Um, last week we started with uh, Cain and in that moment where he was contemplating murdering his brother. Well today interestingly enough we come to the life of Abraham and for as an amazing man of faith as he is we find that he had some of these critical moments as well where he faced his own turning point and unfortunately for some reason and we're going to work through that um, he had learned this trait of not actually always trusting God. Before we actually get into the lesson, and I talked a little to you about context, and the reason I saved it for uh, the lesson itself was because this uh, subject matter actually presents to us two layers of context. There's the bigger context, which I present to you here, and then there's a, a much more a closely connected or specific context. The larger context comes to us in the book of Genesis. And I don't know if you've ever actually had it explained to you this way, but it's actually divided into two major portions, the second one being much larger. But it introduces us to the origins of life. First 11 chapters, or most of the 11 chapters, introduce us to how God created life and how God, if you will, recreated life uh, through the flood. 
If you come to the end of chapter 11, then we find the second major portion of the book of Genesis, which is the origins of our spiritual life. It's uh, where God basically chooses Abraham and makes him the father of the nation of Israel. And it's from that point on, we have a very specific red line to the Savior promise. And you can literally trace it throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And so the entire uh, rest of Genesis is dedicated to God explaining those origins of eternal life to us. The more specific context has to do with uh, the verses that come right at the end of chapter 11 where God calls Abraham, at that point Abram, uh, to relocate to the land of Canaan. Basically pack up, pick up. You guys are going through that with packing up your house and it's not fun, but to relocate to an entire new area. And of course that's always a challenge, but there's also the element of the unknown. It's interesting that Abraham barely gets into the land of Canaan and God has this conversation with him and what he makes to him is five enormous promises. And let's just quickly review. I want to make you into a great nation which is a good reminder of some of the details that exist at this time. Abraham is 75 years old. His wife, uh, Sarah, is 65 years old, and they didn't have any children. In fact, Scripture tells us that she was incapable of bearing children. The next great promise is, I'm, I'm going to make your name great, which had to be comforting for Abraham because he's coming to this strange land. Nobody knew him there. He didn't really know anybody. But he says, at a certain point, Abraham, you're going to be a well-known name, uh, and it's going to be known in a good way. The third one is, anybody who blesses you, I'll bless. Anybody who curses you, I will curse. That's God's promise of protection. I'm going to be with you, Abraham, even though this is a new and strange land. The fourth one is the Savior promise. All the world's going to be blessed through you, meaning you will be the first of this specific line of the ancestors of Messiah. And then just a little bit later, he makes a fifth promise. Even though you're a stranger in this land, one day your uh, descendants are going to own all all of this as far as the eye can see. So that's the more specific context. That's the foundation upon which this lesson is built. This uh, God starting that plan to rescue us from our sins and then ultimately choosing this one specific individual and his family to make sure that that promise comes true. Which is interesting then that we come very quickly after uh, the beginnings of this major division and we have this turning point in Abraham's life. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but you, let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. So immediately your mind can jump, well this was his turning point. Should he trust God? Or should he trust in his own way of surviving? And we see already where this goes. What I'd like to do this morning is unwrap. How does Abraham get to this point? Why does he make this decision? And hopefully by not only seeing this turning point in his life, but uh, not only how God offers this exercise of faith, but sometimes the best way for us to learn is through our failures. At least God takes them and works the good out of them. A couple things we should know, detail-wise specifically, that from the moment that Abraham entered the land of Canaan. For the rest of his life, he lived as a nomad. 
He would wander from place to place. He had no permanent home. And the way that this worked in the Middle East was, is you would pick up stakes of your tent, move it to the next logical area for your cattle and flocks to graze. But one element that oftentimes is overlooked or left out is the only way in which you could live this lifestyle is if you receive permission from the landowners in order to set up stakes there. Because not only would you be using some of their resources as far as their grazing fields would go, but the water as well. And that's what ultimately brings about this issue, because while Abraham is wandering through the land of Canaan, uh, we're told that a drought hits. A nomadic lifestyle is completely dependent on the seasonal rainfall. And in those years where there's not very much rain, or in this situation where there's a severe drought, landowners are far less likely to give you permission to put down stakes on their property, because their resources are already limited, if not completely diminished, by their own flocks. And so the logical thing was for them to go down to the land of Egypt. And we see this not only happening with Abraham, but as you read further into the book of Genesis, you will find that this same scenario happens over and over again. If you uh, skip down to the generation of Jacob, and we have that whole episode with Joseph and his brothers, the reason why you go to Egypt to either relocate or get food is because they didn't have the problem that the land of Canaan had. Over the years, the Egyptians had developed this interesting and, and very intense system of irrigation. And if you know the geography of the land of Egypt, the Nile River flows throughout the entire land. So that not only during times of plenty, but even during times of drought, the crops would actually still thrive. And so it was a logical, but also a necessary thing for Abraham to pull up stakes and then move down to the land of Egypt, where he would be provided for as well as everything he owned. And that's what presents a situation. And unfortunately, sometimes as you read through the English translation, there are certain little details or, if you will, items of interest that kind of already are meant to put our mind on a certain path. This word for going to live there literally has as its second layer of meaning the fact that there's a, a level of anxiety, um, fear we might say, of what lays before us. And, and we've all experienced this in our own life. We become anxious. Uh, we can become worrisome because of the unknown, and that typically means the future or how something's going to work out. Even though they hadn't reached that point yet where Abraham has to decide how he's going to handle this, just the very fact that he was going to this new land caused him um, some fears. And you might think, well, that doesn't make sense. He had just come from a land where he was a stranger. The difference was is that God had directed him and told him to go to the land of Canaan. This was now a logical decision on his part, and I'm not saying it was wrong in any way, shape, or form. He needed to provide for his family, but he starts to meander down towards Egypt, and probably, at least in part of his mind, he's wondering, is this really what God wants me to do? The real situation comes to a head as they approach these borders, and we find out what was really on Abraham's mind, and it has to do with his wife, Sarah, uh, the problem for Abraham, and I wouldn't call it a problem, but she was absolutely beautiful. And you might think, wait a minute, you started by telling me she was 65 years old. Now, how does that work out? Well, there's a couple things we have to remember. They did not age as quickly back then as, as we do now. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. That's told us later in the book of Genesis. So she's just now reaching middle age. And if you're somewhat observant, um, I found that it's true that oftentimes women become more beautiful as they mature in age. L let me, and it's, I'm glad my wife isn't here today so I can say this and I won't embarrass her, but when I dated my wife and we got married, she was cute as a button. 
and she's still very cute, but as the years have gone on, she has developed and matured into this amazing beauty. The same thing can certainly be said of Sarah as well. But there's something else to it, and it has to do with this word beautiful. And the only way I can describe it to you is to tell you that it's the same exact word that is used later on in the book of Genesis in chapter 29 when you get to uh, the grandson of Sarah, Jacob. And he goes back to the fatherland, and he falls in love with Rachel. And you probably know the account where he works seven years to marry her and he gets tricked. That's actually going to be one of our lessons coming up in this Turning Point series. He gets tricked into marrying the older sister Leah and then he is allowed to marry Rachel. There's a way in which Rachel is described and it's the same word for Sarah and it's held out in comparison of her sister Leah who has weak eyes. And there's all kinds of interpretations of that. But simply put, understand it as there's something about this form of beauty that uh, Sarah's eyes were piercing. They were absolutely stunning. Something about the ancient Mideast culture really prized a woman with those kind of eyes that could grab your attention and, and ultimately hold your attention, which is critical when you understand something about the Egyptian culture is history records for us that oftentimes the eyes of Egyptian women were very weak or very plain. That's why when you take a look at art or sculptures of ancient Egypt, you will see that the women have overdone the makeup of their eyes. They're trying to make up for that plainness. And Abraham's working this out in his head. His wife is just a gorgeous woman and she's got these deep grasping eyes and he starts to think to himself you know what we go into this land and I know what the Egyptian women are like they're going to be after my wife and the only way to deal with that then is in his mind is to cook up this plan and he says I want you to tell them that you're my sister there's one other reason why uh, Sarah might have been so beautiful she didn't have kids yet remember that um, I, I know it's kind of a trade-off uh, we love our children very much, but they do put our wives especially through a lot. And so you can hopefully appreciate where Abraham is at and why he comes up with this scenario to protect himself. And quite honestly, that's really the problem. Because as they're entering into this land, Abraham is trying to come up with the answers. Abraham is trying to come up with the solutions, and he comes up with this lie. Now, to be fair to Abraham, Sarah was his sister, his half-sister. If you go back to chapter 11, you find out that they each had the same father. They had different mothers. And again, in our modern way of thinking culture, and God has changed the laws about marrying somebody who's close to you, this just seems absurd to us. But that 10-year age difference didn't seem to bother them, and this close relationship didn't seem to bother them either. And apparently Abraham absolutely loved his wife because she was very beautiful, and, and obviously she was a known quantity, but he also recognizes that her beauty might cost him his life. And so he tells her, I want you to lie for me. Uh, and, and it's interesting how this is also presented to us, because in my mind I would think, well, this must be a turning point for Sarah as well. If she's as beautiful as she is, I would think she would also possess integrity in the sense that if her husband comes to her and says, I need you to lie for me, as a believer in God, she would have simply said, Abraham, we can't do that. I would have thought that maybe Sarah would have said, I think it might be a better plan for us to sit down and pray together and ask God for what we should do. How should we handle this situation? But there's something that is in the translation 
uh, I should say missing from the translation that is in the original language. It's this little word, na. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard me say this before. Sometimes it's the tiniest words which make all the difference in these lessons. This na uh, is roughly translated as, I pray thee. And it's a way to introduce either a very humble request, or on the other hand, it's a way to introduce a very serious order and command. And the way in which you figure that out is you take a look at the verb that follows, this verb say. It seems pretty neutral in our own language, but it's in the command form. The point is that Abraham wasn't asking for Sarah's input. He didn't sit down with his wife and go, let's talk about this and see if we can't figure this out together. Abraham was not interested in his wife's input. In his own mind, he had figured out the only way to resolve this issue of the beauty of his wife and entering into this new land was to coerce her, to literally order her, you need to lie so that I don't die. You see, this is the kind of lie that comes from the very worst possible place. And don't get me wrong, all lies are bad. But a lie that comes from a heart of fear leads to all kinds of trouble. The situation is it's not so much that Abraham thought so much of his wife that he could depend on her. The truth of the matter is, is that in this most critical point in his life, when he was facing this turning point, he had so little faith in God. And that's not how our exercises of faith are meant to go. God permits these exercises of faith. God literally allows critical moments into your life not because he wants to see you struggle or suffer, but because he literally wants to exercise your faith. Because you are given a choice. And I know sometimes, like Abraham, we back ourselves into this corner thinking, I can only do this one thing. The truth of the matter is, that's not how faith works. That's not how God's relationship with us works. Oftentimes, when we come from a place of fear, we only leave ourselves one option. Jesus, I just don't trust you. You don't trust me? No, I mean, I want to trust you. I just don't. <laughs> I have an exercise that I think will really help you. Oh, okay. Stand here and face this direction. Mm -hmm. Now, do you trust me? Uh, no, I just said I don't trust you. All right, well, this is all part of the exercise. Oh, all right. Okay. Whenever I ask you if you trust me, you say, yes, Jesus, I trust you. Even though I don't. It's practice. Okay. So, do you trust me? <laughs> yes, Jesus. I trust you. Now, fall back. Are you going to catch me? Don't worry about that part. Okay, that's the part I'm worried about. <laughs> you can do this, okay? Just trust me. Trust you. Fall back. Okay, well, Jesus, I trust Good. you. Yes, I do trust you. I'm going to fall okay. back. Woo! Oh, okay. <laughs> that's great. Uh, okay. Let's try this again. Just face this direction and keep your feet planted, okay. all right? Do you trust me? Yes, Jesus, I trust you. Now, fall back. Okay, I'm gonna do it. All right. I'm really gonna do it. <laughs> okay. Good. Ah! Oh, Jesus, you really caught yeah. me! I didn't think you were gonna catch me, but you did! Oh, that was great! <laughs> that was great! You're ready for level two! Level two, here yes. I come, baby! Woo! Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, hold it. <laughs> oh, you know what? You're too close. You need to move back. Ah, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this one's a little bit different, Laura. Oh, okay. Uh, stand here. Uh-huh. But face me. Woo! Forward fall. Okay. I can do that. Wait. Whoa. Okay. Um, wait for my signal. Oh, right. The Jesus signal. <laughs> yes. The okay. Jesus signal. Do you trust me? Yes, Jesus. I trust you so much. Good. Fall back. <laughs> That's awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> Especially when you do it. 
Seriously? Of course. Okay, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed this, but there is nobody over there. I know it looks that way to you. It looks that way. It is that way. You can do this, Laura. Just trust me and fall back. Jesus, I can't do that. We can do it together. I can't. You can. I won't. And that's the problem. I know this is a repeat video, but it was too good not to use for this lesson because it really highlights the fact we think we don't have a choice. We think we have to figure ourselves out of the situation. We have this turning point moment in our life, and it's not that we can't trust Jesus. We won't. Why? Because we place far too much trust in ourselves. We think we're the ones that knows our life the best. We know all the scenarios, and we somehow convince ourselves that Almighty God, who knows everything, who knows the secrets of our mind and hearts, has no second option to what we're dealing with in our lives. That's where we find Abraham as he faces this conundrum of his own life. And in fact, what we find is that sometimes when we're facing this exercise of faith, this temptation to not trust God, we don't even think straight. Abraham forgot everything that God had done for him. And there's something here that we dare not overlook you know, when God gave those five just amazing promises to him uh, up front, he never questions God. He never stops for a moment and goes, how are you going to do this? He takes God at his word. But it seems like the first time he faces a challenge in his life, when he really needs to reach out and trust in his creator and loving Savior God, he chooses not to. And he forgot that one of those promises was that he was going to be the father of the nation of Messiah. Even if he had just thought this through critically and logically, if I'm supposed to be that father and I don't have any children yet, then two plus two equals four and God must save me. He must take care of me. But it wasn't just the promise that Abraham forgot about. It was why God made that promise. Abraham forgot about how much God loved him. And God loves this world and wanted to do everything necessary in order to rescue us in this world, to quite literally rescue us from ourselves. And look at what this fear causes, not only for him to fall, but to lead his wife into committing some pretty desperate things that she too was invited into this lie and she willingly accepted. He exposes his wife to sexual abuse and the sin of adultery. And quite honestly, in the end, what he did was he treated his own wife like dirt. Because all of a sudden, Abraham's thoughts were centered on himself and his own welfare, and he stopped thinking about anybody else, including God. And worse than the lie was the fact that Abraham failed to do the very first thing that God has given to men, to love and protect his wife. The same thing that Adam failed to do as his wife stood there in that turning point moment of history. And you know how that ended. If we would just be willing to take a step back in situations like this, consider not only what God has said to us, but just for a moment consider the love that is required of this almighty being who would make these promises to us. And how he so amazingly and beautifully he's designed not only the gift of our wives, but what husbands are responsible to do. That not only can we show love to each other, 
but we can more fully appreciate the love that God has shown to each and every one of us. You see, Abraham forgot to love his wife, but that started with forgetting how much God chose to love him. Now, the reality of the situation is this, and we find ourselves in these situations so often in our day-to-day lives. We confront a problem, a dilemma, and immediately, almost without exception, we start to think, what do I need to do? What Abraham failed to remember was that in every single one of those promises, promises that came from a deep part of God's love, God doesn't say at any point, Abraham, some of this is up to you. You're going to need to do this, this, or this. Or maybe you're going to have to figure this out. God says, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. And what Abraham was supposed to learn through all of us, that if you ever want to really confront your fears, the only way to do that is to turn to God's love. John himself says that the only way to drive out the fear of our lives is not our perfect love, but the perfect love of God, the God who chose to love us. And just as an aside, to see this love of God in action, and that's where our psalm comes in, he protected Sarah from that sin of adultery and from her husband's foolishness. Uh, He used some means to let Pharaoh know that this was not a woman which he could have. And after signaling that, Pharaoh calls him forward uh, without having defiled Sarah and says, uh, Abraham, why did you lie to me? This is your wife. And he, without harming them, dismisses them and sends them on their way. So even despite everything Abraham had done, God still protected him and protected Sarah as well. Which leads to a nagging question. What turning points do you anticipate having to deal with this week? What's going to be your crossing into Egypt over the next seven days? Uh, Are you dealing with some health issue of something that's been on your mind, maybe even bothering you and worrying you, you know, waiting for some test results, or is it this or is it going to be that? Is it something at work? Maybe, maybe there's somebody you work with. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe you are the boss. <laughs> and, and things just are not going the way you'd like them to go. There's, there's, there's challenges. And, and, and maybe the books aren't balancing the way you'd hope they would. And uh, you're, you're scrambling. How can, how can I make this work? Or, or maybe it's just a personal relationship. It, it seems like you put all the time and energy into it, and you're not getting the response you want. And your go-to move is, is, what do I have to do differently? What do I have to do differently? At any point, do we stop this crazy thought cycle and say, God, I need your help. I know we pray for it in a general way, but let's take that one specific request that is, is just eating us alive and throw it on the throne of God and say, you're almighty, you're all-knowing, show me. And, and it's my privilege to tell you that God has done three amazing things to help us through this, this challenge of faith, these exercises, especially when fear is just banging at our door. The first is this. God created us to trust. Now, I know sin has screwed that up, so we have to deal with that reality. And we'll get to that in a second. But the natural way in which God has created us is that he has placed within each and every single one of us the ability and the propensity to trust. It's supposed to be our natural go-to. And hopefully you've learned to do that in your marriages, in your relationship with your children, people that mean so much to you in your lives. Hopefully you have a very deep and trusting relationship. Stop and consider that as a blessing from God. 
The second thing uh, I'd like to remind you is that God, through not only our creation, but through our recreation of the gift of faith, has wired our brains in such a way where we can actually fight against the effects of sin. Now, we actually had a lesson on this in the post-Easter Sundays, and that's the one downside of having the two campuses. Um, but I spoke to this specifically in a sermon. I preached it in Cottage Grove. So if you are wrestling with something, I would encourage you to go to our website, look for the May 7th sermon entitled, Aha. Uh, not only through a stretch of that sermon, but I actually show a video of how God has so amazingly wired our brains that we can get ourselves out of this feedback loop of fear. And basically, God says, here's all the options. These are the ones that work. Try them. And last, but certainly not least, we have the example of our loving Savior. And that's why this was chosen as our gospel lesson. John 8 is probably the single most contentious chapter recording the ministry of Jesus Christ up until the end of his life. He's in the temple courtyard teaching the people, as was his custom. Chapter 8 begins with the teaches the law bringing in this adulterous woman. She was caught in the act of adultery. And she brings him to Jesus, render your decision. And then John puts in this little interesting line. They were using this as a trap. They wanted to try and expose Jesus because Moses said, we got to stone such women. Now what do you say? Of course, Jesus doesn't fall for it. That's the one where he says, whoever is without sin, go ahead, pick up, cast the first stone. That feeling, then they confront him directly. They challenge his authority to claim to be Messiah to actually, what is, what is your witness? And he calls on God the Father as his witness, and that's where he launches into this amazing explanation of exactly who he is and what he has come to do for us. And, and this is the one where, as you get towards the end of the chapter, Jesus says, before Abraham, the man who we've spent our morning studying, he says, I am. That's the Hebrew way of saying, I'm God. It requires God. It requires nothing less than God to come here and pay for the sins of the world. And it's at that point they pick up stones and they're going to stone him to death. And John tells us he slips through the crowd and they don't find him. Of course, God the Father had spared that until the final part of his ministry. Here's the thing that we need to note of this. Besides all of the other amazing things, besides the fact that Jesus came to pay for our sins of fear and failing to trust in God, he gives us this perfect example of where to go when we need help. Remember, this is the Son of God who could have snapped his fingers and all these people who were pestering him could have been wiped off the face of the earth and instead, as true man, he says, you know what? I'm going to trust in my Father. I'm here to do my Father's will, and rather than just simply going to my go-to, I'm going to trust the one who sent me. I'm going to trust my Father because his promises are true. And if there's anybody who knows the heart of God the Father, it has to be God the Son. And he teaches us it is a heart filled with love. You see, a lot of times we're encouraged to simply place our faith and depend on the word of God, and I would in no way, shape, or form want to discourage that. But even before that, we have to remember the reason we trust God is because of his love for us, a perfect love that drives out all fear. This is lesson two of our Turning Point series, and I hope and pray that each and one of these you see how it builds and it empowers us to each face those critical turning points every single day of our lives. And hopefully this one has readied you for whatever is coming next for you over the, the week ahead. I've got this crazy radical idea and I think it's worth giving it a try when you face that turning point moment this week rather than trusting in yourself try this 
trust God. So imagine with me that it's a fall morning years from now. Right, the sun is shining through your window, you'd get out of bed just like it's any other day. Except this particular day would be different. It would be your last day on earth. So you'd walk outside and begin reflecting on life from day one to where you are now. And in that moment, my question to you is, what would you value most looking back? I've always been intrigued by this question. Even though it's a tough one, I like it because it's a simple reminder of what's important. It brings much needed perspective. So what would that moment look like, your last day, when you get to look back on everything you've done, right, the legacy you've made? You most likely won't focus on how tough the climbs were. You probably won't remember the battles and the struggles. What you'll remember are the moments of victory, the times when you were able to do something significant to contribute to the world, to help and be near those who mean the most to you. What we learn as we get older, as we progress through life, is that failures dissolve, right? They fade away. They provide us with the wisdom that we so desperately need, and then they disappear into the universe. It's the other piece that needs our attention. That quote we've heard a million times about regretting the things that we don't do more than the things we do. And how fear constantly gets in the way of our potential. So imagine, right, as you continue this walk outside, that you think about your dreams, the things that fear kept you from becoming. Because on your last day alive in the face of death, you'll probably realize that the worst possible scenario wasn't as scary as you thought. Study after study shows that the biggest regret of people with limited time left is living according to the expectations of others, not having lived a life that was true to themselves. We're fortunate enough to have that wisdom now. Why would we not act on it? Don't let yourself be the person who looks back and dreams about what if. Do your dreaming in the present. We're all writing our stories. Make yours a thriller. Make it a bestseller. Live now. Let that fear fade away because in a universe where your existence essentially equates to a drop of rain in a thunderstorm, be the type of person who finishes this walk outside with a smile, content with the journey, all the turns, the adventures, the small failures that shaped who you are, the successes that lifted you up. As the old saying goes, everyone dies, but few truly live. <laughs>